Welcome to episode 116 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we're looking at Season 5, Episode 11, Kill Switch. The original air date was February 15th, 1998, and the IMDb user score has risen from 7.8 to 8.1 out of 10. The action primarily takes place in Washington, D.C. and the state of Virginia. This is a fairly major episode, not so much for what's on screen and what it contributes to the myth arc, but for what was going on in the background. The on-screen story is about computer genius David Gelman trying to shut down an AI, but that AI manages to coordinate a massive shootout between federal agents and a series of drug dealers with Gelman caught in the crossfire in a rather elaborate murder plot. Mulder and Scully are drawn in, and end up fighting his former grad student, who also seems to be targeted by this AI, which she claims is a constructed intelligence that they created and let loose online. It's not easy, but they do eventually outrun the traps and attacks that the AI is setting up to destroy it, and the grad student eventually uploads her own consciousness in the process. Now, behind the scenes, this was directed by Rob Bowman, who was dividing his time between this episode and post-production on the first X-Files movie. There are three writers that share credits, William Gibson, Tom Maddox, and Chris Carter. The X-Files is the only IMDb credit for Maddox. Gibson also has credits for video games, movies, and TV shows adapted from his works, including Neuromancer, Chaos Engine, Tomorrow Calling, Johnny Mnemonic, and New Rose Hotel, and the announced but not scheduled pattern recognition. Those two will also share credit for writing an episode that comes up in Season 7. And Chris Carter has co-writing credits because he rewrote the scripts to keep them more in line with the sensibilities of the show. This episode also won the Emmy for Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing. It's the highest budgeted episode of the entire Vancouver production run, largely because this was the last season in Vancouver. So as the show escalated, those increased costs got transferred to L.A., In fact, this was the episode they were filming when Chris Carter announced to cast and crew that the production was going to be moving to L.A., confirming rumors that were already floating around with the film being produced in L.A. Now, what drove this budget up was a combination of multiple locations with multiple sets, some visual effects including rather massive explosions, and a number of computer screens that were visible on screen in the film. You wouldn't think that recording a computer screen on camera would actually be that expensive. But one of the things I learned listening to Joss Whedon's commentary in the pilot episode of Buffy is that it actually is very expensive. That episode aired about a year before this one did. So it was still in the area of cathode ray tube televisions. I don't know how pronounced the issue is these days or how expensive it is. But the problem you get is that TV screens and monitors and TV cameras individually can all fool the eye with persistence of vision. The human eye can only detect so many changes. That's actually why sometimes movies are called flicks. When they first started, they were 16 frames per second, and the human eye can easily detect the flashing of the frames, so the pictures used to flicker, which is where the nickname flick came from. When they shifted from the 16 frame per second silent films in black and white to the 24 frame per second color films with onboard sound, they found that even at 24 frames per second, the human eye could still detect the flicker, So they built the cameras to flash each frame twice. So one second of film, traditionally, has had 24 different images, but they flash 48 times to fool the human eye. You generally have to get to about 30 frames per second to fool the human eye with unique frames and not see the flickering. 
So computer monitors have a variety of refresh rates. TV cameras at this time were filming at about 30 frames a second. Either of those individually can fool the human eye. But when you put them together, you get what's known as a beat frequency. So if your camera is filming at 24 frames a second, but your monitor is displaying 30 frames a second, the human eye will detect a flicker rate of about 6 frames per second, or 6 flickers per second, because of the difference between them. Sometimes the film captures a blank screen, or two pictures of two different screens, you know, one frame on the top half, another frame on the bottom half, and so forth. So filming monitors effectively turns out to be a pretty big challenge. And according to Joss Whedon, one of the reasons Macs were so prevalent in TV at this time is because Apple created hardware so that you could synchronize your TV camera to their monitors, as did Microsoft for Windows, but Apple's was only about 10% of the cost to obtain and use that Microsoft's was. As a result, Apple became so much more cost-effective, and they ended up getting considerably more product placement. In an episode like this, when you've got computer monitors in virtually every scene, well, those add up quite a bit. And that's all before we get to Mulder's dream sequence, or his nightmare sequence, in which he's lost both arms, and Scully comes in and does some kung fu moves to beat up the sexy nurses, while he's lying in bed with some pretty significant makeup effects going on. So it is a fun episode. There are a couple of guest stars of note. Patrick Keating makes his first appearance in the X-Files with this. His second and final appearance to date is in the second film, but he does have 44 acting credits to his name, including the Netflix original 1922, The Betrayed, and The Deadly Pledge, aka The Haunting of Sorority Row, as well as guest appearances on iZombie, Series of Unfortunate Events, Supernatural, Smallville, Psych, The Dead Zone, and quite a few more. Kate Luiban plays one of the nurses. She's got a fairly decent credit to her name, including Shanghai Noon, 40-Year-Old Version, Intolerable Cruelty, 321 Frankie Go Boom, True Blood, and a number of other shows. The standout guest star to me is Kristen Lehman. She's got 61 credits to her name. The IMDb lists her best-known works for Motive, The Sentinel, The Way of the Gun, and The Killing. This is her only appearance on The X-Files, although she had just previously appeared in John Woo's Once a Thief, which also starred Nick Lee, and played Detective Jordan McGuire in six episodes of Kung Fu The Legend Continues. She was also in Earth Final Conflict, Poltergeist The Legacy, Go Fish, The Outer Limits, Strange World, but to me she stands out from her role as Lime Bristol in the nine-episode series Century City, which was a series about a law firm in the not-too-distant future that I thought was really well-written, but was not well-received by audiences who felt that, as it was said in the 2030s or late 2020s, that some of the technological advances that they were showing were just totally impossible and completely unrealistic. This is a series from 2004 that was predicting in 25 to 30 years we'd have things like highways dedicated to self-driving cars, or effectively cloud computing, where a handheld device would give you access to a complete network at work, the full database, the full internet. It seemed ridiculous that we'd get things that soon at the time. 13 years later, half that time has elapsed, and I'd say we're more than halfway there to a lot of their predictions that they had in that series. I wish they would have released it on DVD. It's only nine episodes, and I think it was underrated. In any event, 
Killswitch is an entertaining episode of The X-Files, and it's well worth watching, even if it doesn't contribute to the larger narrative. As for the science, well, the internet of the 1990s had some distributed storage, but the distributed processing was like SETI at home, where different computers would work asynchronously on different parts of a problem. So three different computers would download three different data sets, analyze just that portion, and then return their share of it. No guarantees that those pieces are going to be returned at the same time. If you're going to have a decent artificial intelligence, then you need to make sure that the processing is synchronous. Now, something as complicated as a human mind is also going to need some major dedicated hardware. The AI is shown to have some pretty major dedicated hardware, which was custom built for it. With 1998 technology, that's unlikely, though not impossible. The technology to upload a human being's consciousness into the net and exist in that form, that just wasn't a possibility then, and I doubt it's a possibility now. And that's going way beyond the idea of being able to read a human brain as a neural net accurately enough to upload the information. And yet these computer experts may have the expertise required to write the programs that could process that much information, but nobody on their team seemed to have the expertise needed to come up with the brain scanning hardware that would take the arrangement of your neurons and the circuits and the electrical pulses going through them and reinterpret that as a software data set that can operate online. There's whole transformation piece in there that this team just didn't represent. Anyway, that's about all we have to say for Kill Switch. Join us again in two weeks when we take a look at Bad Blood. Thank you for listening.